Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much. It's a real honor to be speaking, especially under the auspices of the Thomistic Institute. Uh, I've been to Georgetown and had the pleasure of speaking here on a number of occasions, but this is my first event for uh, the Thomistic Institute, uh, whose work I admire uh, very much. So thank you very much for inviting me. My topic this evening is religious liberty and the human good. The starting points of all ethical reflection are those fundamental and irreducible aspects of human well-being and fulfillment that some philosophers, I and others, refer to as basic human goods. These goods, friendship, knowledge, aesthetic beauty, justice, and so forth, as more than merely instrumental ends or purposes, things we intelligibly want not merely as means to other ends, but for their own sakes, are the subjects of the very first principles of practical reasoning that control all rational thinking with a view to action. By practical reasoning, I'm uh, referring not to pragmatic thinking, but to practical in Aristotle's sense. That is, reasoning with a view to action. And it controls these first principles of practical reason that refer to the things that are worth wanting for their own sakes and not merely as means to other ends, control our reasoning whether or not that reasoning in the end leads us to good or bad judgments and actions. So the first principles of practical reason direct our choosing toward what is rationally desirable because humanly fulfilling and therefore intelligibly available to choice and away from the privations of those things. So disease is the privation of health. We have very good reasons for valuing health, for acting for the sake of health, going to the doctor when we're sick, stopping smoking, eating a better diet, going and getting some exercise. Health is a basic human good, a reason for acting that requires no deeper or further reason or subrational motive for its intelligibility. But just as we can act for the sake of health, we can act to avoid the privations of health, disease, illness, and so forth. It is in the end, and this is going to sound very abstract, but I promise I will make it concrete as we go along. In the end, 
It's the integral directiveness of these first principles of practical reasoning. Again, the principles directing our choice and action toward what's humanly fulfilling, toward aspects of our well-being and fulfillment. The stuff that you have reason to want, not just as means to other ends, but as ends in themselves, that provides the criterion, or when fully specified, the set of criteria, the moral norms by which it's possible to distinguish right from wrong, that is morally good from morally bad action, including just action from unjust action. Morally good choices are choices that are in line with the various fundamental aspects of human well-being and fulfillment integrally conceived. Morally bad choices are choices that are not. I've just given you the worst of it. That's the hard part. <laughs> from now on, it'll be more concrete. To say the very, very abstract and difficult to grasp things that I've just said is simply to spell out philosophically the point made by Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham jail about just and unjust laws. Uh, how many of have you have uh, read King's letter from Birmingham? Okay, good. So most people know what I'm talking about here. King tells us that just laws are laws that honor people's rights and unjust laws are laws that violate them. Now you'll perhaps recall, those of you who've read King's letter, that the great civil rights champion um, anticipated a challenge to the moral goodness of the acts that he had committed, acts of civil disobedience, that had landed him behind bars in Birmingham. He anticipated his critics asking him this question. How can you, Dr. King, engage in willful law-breaking when you yourself had stressed the importance of obedience to law in demanding that the officials of the southern states conform to the Supreme Court's desegregation ruling in the case of Brown versus Board of Education just a few years earlier? Well, let's listen to King's response to the challenge. Those of you who have read it will remember these words. The answer, Dr. King says, lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, I'm quoting, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral obligation to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. King continues, I'm still quoting. Now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, I'm still quoting King, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just, any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority." Unquote. So, just laws elevate and ennoble the human personality, or what King in other contexts refers to as the human spirit. Unjust laws disgrace or debase and degrade it. 
Now, King's point about the morality or immorality of laws is a good reminder that what is true of what is sometimes called personal morality is also true of political morality. That is, the actions not just of individual persons, you and me, but the actions of political bodies, governments. The choices and actions of political institutions at every level, like the choices and actions of individuals, can be right or wrong, morally good or morally bad, just or unjust. They can be in line with human well-being and fulfillment in all its manifold dimensions, or they can fail in any of a range of possible ways to respect the integral flourishing of human persons, which is what King is talking about. In many cases, the failure of laws, policies, and institutions to fulfill the requirements of morality are or come down to what we would call violations of human rights. This is particularly true where the failure is properly characterized as an injustice, failing to honor people's equal worth and dignity, what the segregation laws did. But contrary to the teaching of the late and very great Harvard philosopher John Rawls and the extraordinarily influential stream of contemporary liberal thought of which he was the leading exponent, how many of you have read Rawls's work? A few, good, excellent. Contrary to what Rawls held, I would argue, the good, that is the human good, is prior to the right. Rawls, for those of you who've read his work will recall, Rawls argued that that the right is prior to the good. We've got to figure out what's right for our political institutions. We've got to figure out what rights people have that those institutions should protect and honor without any reference to the human good because the human good is something that people disagree about. And so given human disagreement, to be fair to everybody, we can't make laws, decide what's just and unjust, on the basis of controversial judgments of the human good, of what makes for it detracts from a valuable and morally worthy way of life. And that is what I'm challenging in this lecture. And here's what I mean. To be sure, human rights, including the right that we're gathered here this evening to consider, the right to religious liberty, are among the moral principles that demand respect from all of us, including governments and international institutions, which are morally bound not only to respect human rights, but also to protect them. My friend Tim Shaw, who's here this evening, does a lot of work in the international human rights field. We're going to be doing a conference together on this topic, and we're interested in what governments and international institutions can and should be doing to protect human rights. To respect people, to respect their dignity is, among other things, to honor their rights, including their right to religious freedom. Like all moral principles, however, human rights, including the right to religious liberty, are shaped and given content precisely by the human goods they protect. There's my big anti-Rawlsian point. Far from believing, as Rawls does, that to understand what rights people have, we have to abstract from questions of the human good because people disagree. I'm arguing that the only way we can understand what rights people have is to figure out what the human good is. Rights, like other moral principles, are intelligible as rational action-guiding principles precisely because they are entailments and at some level specifications of the integral directiveness, the prescriptivity 
of those principles of practical reason that direct our choosing toward what is humanly fulfilling, or as Dr. King would say, uplifting of the human personality or the human spirit, and away from what is contrary to our well-being as the kind of creatures we are, namely human persons, rational animals. And so, for example, it matters to the identification, let's take a different right, the most fundamental really of all rights, the most foundational, it matters to the identification and defense of the right to life, a right violated not only when the death of another is sought as one's end or as a means to one's end, but also in cases in which someone's death is foreseen and accepted unfairly as a side effect of one's action to pursue a certain end. That human life is no mere instrumental good. It really matters that our lives, our biological lives as human beings, as organisms, is no mere instrumental good, but is itself an intrinsic aspect of ourselves as human beings. It's intrinsic to who we are, an integral dimension of our own flourishing. So to flourish is not only to have a lot of friends, it's not only to have good relations with others, it's not only to be very uh, as smart as you can be, as intelligent as you can be, as thoughtful as you can be, it's also to be healthy, to be alive, to be vital. We human beings can flourish or fail to flourish in respect of many, many, many different things because we're complex creatures. We're rational, so we can flourish or fail to flourish in terms of intellect. We're moral, so we can flourish or fail to flourish in terms of character. You can be like Hitler or be like Mother Teresa. We can flourish or fail to flourish in respect of our relations with others because we're social creatures. But at the foundation of it all, we can flourish or fail to flourish in terms of our physical health. If you're dead, you're not going to be able to participate in any of the other goods that provide more than merely instrumental reasons for action, precisely because they are aspects of our flourishing as the kinds of creatures we are. So just as it matters that life is an intrinsic aspect of our well-being for the identification of a right to life, don't go around killing people, it matters to the identification and defense of the right to religious liberty that religion, here comes a controversial claim, you ready for it? Religion is yet another irreducible aspect of human well-being and fulfillment, a basic human good. Now there you're going to be saying, whoa, wait, no, wait a minute, Professor George. Richard Dawkins, or Michael Shermer, or Sam Harris, <laughs> would stop you right there and say, whoa, where did that come from? Religion's not a human good, religion's a bad. Richard Dawkins is actually an old friend of mine. We uh, were together when I was a very young uh, man, and he, was, he wasn't very old himself at that point. We were uh, together as fellows of, um, as members of the senior common room at uh, New College in, in Oxford, which was new in 1379, <laughs> actually. So uh, I had many conversations with Professor Dawkins and drank many coffees and had many lunches. Uh, and I want to tell you that I think that when religion is understood properly for the purposes that we're discussing tonight, even Dawkins would have to admit, he might want to use a different word for it, would have to admit that religion is in fact a human good, or at least what I'm labeling religion is an aspect of our well-being and fulfillment. So let me see if I can pull it off, or, or am I just blowing smoke or pulling a rabbit out of the hat? So what do I mean by religion? I mean this. In its fullest and most robust sense, 
Religion is the human person's being in right relation to all of the wider reality, whatever that in fact is, including preeminently supernatural reality or the divine, assuming that there is such a thing. It's to be in touch with whatever are, in line with whatever are, the ultimate sources of meaning and value. Now, of course, even the greatest among us in the things of the Spirit fall short of perfection in various ways. That's why the greatest saints always think they're the greatest sinners. It's those of us who are great sinners who tend to think we're great saints. But in the ideal of perfect religion, the person would understand as comprehensively and deeply as possible the body of truths about spiritual things and would fully order his or her life and share in the community, the life of a community of faith, that is ordered in line with those truths. In the perfect realization of the good of religion, one would achieve the relationship that God himself, assuming for the moment the truth of theism or monotheism, wishes us to have with him. Now, of course, different traditions of faith, East and West, have different views of what constitutes religion in its fullest and most robust sense. There are different doctrines, different scriptures, different structures of authority, different ideas about what is true about spiritual reality and what it means to be in proper relationship to the more than merely human sources of meaning and value that different traditions understand as divinity. Uh, early in my, when I was a college student, I had the wonderful opportunity to study with a great Theravada Buddhist uh, master, uh, the Chao Kun Rajavara Muni. And I learned a great deal as a result of being able to study with him about, uh, about uh, Buddhism. Uh, and Buddhism certainly has its own vision or understanding of how we fulfill ourselves as spiritual creatures. But it's very different from what we're accustomed to in the monotheistic traditions. Now, for my part, and here we'll, you, you, you know, it doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not, but I'm going to go ahead and put this on the table. Um, for my part, I believe that reason, rationality, the old noggin, has a very large role to play for each of us in deciding where spiritual truth most robustly is to be found. I have a big debate about this with my beloved friend and teaching partner, Cornell West, uh, who's a Kierkegaardian. He's an old-school Kierkegaardian, and he thinks religion is ultimately just a matter of the leap of faith. It's a, it's a leap he's perfectly happy to make, but he has a very um, low uh, opinion of the role of reason in the spiritual quest. Uh, and he thinks I'm a dreadful rationalist uh, because I have a very high uh, view. And by reason here, I mean not only our capacity for practical reasoning in Aristotle's sense, as I explained earlier, and moral judgment, but also our capacities for understanding and evaluating claims of all sorts, logical, historical, scientific, and so forth. So if I want to know whether Christianity is true, I want to know what's the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to evaluate that evidence from a historian's perspective. I want to know about the logic of Christian teachings. Does it hang together or not? Uh, I, I think that various uh, uh, modes of inquiry are highly relevant to the question, where should I be, on the question of what's true and false in matters of religion. Cornell thinks differently. He thinks it's a matter of the, of the leap. But one need not, someone like Cornell need not agree with me about the role of reason to affirm with me 
that there is a distinct basic human good, I'll call it religion, if you want to call it something else, if Dawkins wants to call it something else, call it something else, but I'm going to describe it and defy anybody to say that's not a human good. And it's a good that is uniquely architectonic in shaping one's pursuit of and participation in all the other basic human goods. So any religious person, whether it is a Buddhist, a Hindu, uh, a, a Muslim, a Christian, a Zoroastrian, that person's religious faith will play an instrumental role in the whole of his or her life, even in what appear to be, from an outsider's perspective, the secular dimensions of life. And I believe one begins to realize and participate in this good, which I'm calling religion, the moment one begins the quest to understand the more than merely human sources of meaning and value, if there are such things, and to live authentically by ordering one's life in line with one's best judgment, whatever it turns out to be. Could be atheistic, could be Buddhist, could be Muslim, could be Christian, but leading one's life in line with one's best judgments, authentically in line with one's best judgments of the truth of religious matters, where one is acting not just to please other people around you or to get ahead or to look good to your peers or to impress you know, your girlfriend or boyfriend, but really going at the truth of things. Now, if I'm right, then the following. The existential raising of religious questions, questions of meaning and value. Is there a more than merely human source of meaning and value? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is possible for us? Are we merely material creatures? Can we transcend the merely material? The raising of those questions, the honest identification of answers, and the fulfilling of what one sincerely believes to be one's duties in light of those answers are all parts of this human good I'm calling religion. A good whose pursuit is indispensable to the comprehensive flourishing of a human being. You cannot be a fully flourishing human being if you don't raise those questions, answer them as honestly as you can, live your life with authenticity and integrity in light of your best answers, whatever those answers are. So at its foundation, this good I'm talking about, I'm calling it religion, has three critical components. The raising of the questions, about meaning and value, the big issues, the honest effort to answer the questions, and then living with authenticity and integrity in light of one's best answers. Are you going to tell me Richard Dawkins is going to say, no, nah, that's not anything worth anything? No. He's going to say, yeah, I'm an atheist. I reach atheist conclusions. You know, I try to live my life in line with my atheist conclusions. I don't pretend to be religious in order to you know, impress people or get ahead or anything like that. Dawkins would think that his kids were deficient if they didn't spend some time thinking about the great questions of meaning and value, doing their best to answer them authentically, and then leading their lives in line with their best judgments, because he is capable of grasping, grasping every bit as much as a religious person is able to grasp the intrinsic, not merely instrumental, the intrinsic value of that stuff. 
If you don't want to call it religion, fine. Labels don't matter. But that's where the religious quest begins. That's where we begin to realize this good. If I'm right about that, then human beings, man, is, as Seamus Hassan puts it, intrinsically and by nature a religious being. Just as we're moral beings, that is, we, we are responsible for our actions, just as we are physical beings, just as we are social beings, we enter into relationships with others and relationships that often are not merely instrumental, genuine friendships, family relationships, marriages, and so forth. Just as we are those kinds of things, we are also religious beings, questers, answers of big questions, answerers of big questions. People who should, who understand that they should, try to live authentic lives in line with those answers. So on this understanding, a figure like Camus, who is not a theist, Albert Camus, mean, they mean anything to, yeah, okay. Albert Camus doesn't reach theistic conclusions, but he's a textbook case of a seeker and a searcher, fulfilling his own nature, realizing the good of inquiring into these questions, answering them honestly. He's as honest as you get, trying to live an, a life of integrity in line with his answers. But if that's true, then respect for a person's well-being, his all-round flourishing. In other words, respect for a person demands respect for that person's flourishing as a seeker of religious truth and as a man or woman who lives in line with his or her best judgments of what is true in spiritual matters. And that, in turn, requires respect for his or her liberty, freedom, in the religious quest. If you take away a person's freedom to ask the question, or you let them ask the questions, but you take away that person's freedom to answer those questions honestly, or live with authenticity and integrity in light of those answers, you've damaged the person in respect of a fundamental aspect of his or her well-being, an intrinsic aspect of his or her well-being. How many of you know Havel's story of the greengrocer. Greengrocer. No, no. Yeah, okay. Uh, any, anybody else? None of the younger people do. Baklav Havel. Does name mean anything? Yeah, look, it's all us older guys. Yeah. Baklav Havel? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, okay. It's not your fault. It's not your, it's our fault. It's our generation's fault that you don't know who Baklav Havel is. Havel was a great leader of the movement to overthrow Soviet totalitarianism in Eastern Europe. He was a Czech uh, writer, novelist, uh, poet. Um, and one of his stories, he became a great hero of the human rights movement, a great human rights champion. One of his stories was a true story uh, about the government requiring everybody, if you were a shop owner, to put a sign in your window of your shop, Workers of the World Unite, the famous Marxist slogan. So this greengrocer, who, of course, thinks that Marxism is a lot of baloney. He doesn't believe it for a second. He's actually seen the results of it living in the Czech Republic and that it's nothing but tyranny and, uh, and abuse. Nevertheless, he puts up the sign under coercion, right? His, his freedom is taken away, uh, uh, but he does it. And, you know, that's a violation of the person's right and a damage to the person's well-being. 
So uh, if we're to respect the person in all of the dimensions of the person's flourishing, including his flourishing as a seeker of religious truth, we're going to have to respect the person's liberty to make up his own mind about where the truth lies and to live in conformity to the extent that we can uh, with his or her best uh, judgments. And that's why it makes sense from the point of view of reason itself. Notice I've not made any claims based on revelation here. It makes sense from the point of view of reason itself and not merely from the point of view of the revealed religion, uh, revealed teachings of a particular faith, though there are faiths like the Catholic faith that proclaims the right to religious freedom on theological and not merely philosophical grounds. But it makes sense as a rational matter to understand religious freedom as a fundamental human right. Why is it a fundamental human right? Because it protects a fundamental human good. That simple. Now, interestingly and tragically, in times past, and even in some places today, many places across the globe, as Tim Shaw knows, it's actually regard for what people think is regard for person's spiritual well-being that has been the premise and motivating factor for denying religious liberty or conceiving of it in a cramped or restricted way. I have in mind places like Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the worst kinds of theocratic, oppressive theocratic regimes. Before the Catholic Church fully embraced the robust conception of religious freedom that honors the civil right to give public witness and expression to sincere religious views even when erroneous in the document Dignitatis Humanae of the Second Vatican Council, some Catholics, including people all the way up to the top, popes, rejected the idea of a right to religious freedom on the theory that quote, only the truth has rights. The idea for people who embraced that theory was that the state, the government, under favoring conditions where it could do it, should not only publicly identify itself with Catholicism as the one true faith, but should forbid the advocacy of other faiths or proselytizing that could lead people into religious error or apostasy. So on, on this theory, the state not only legitimately may, but should, for example, prevent Mormon missionaries from knocking on the doors of Catholic families and saying, have you considered joining the true church, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, as the church today recognizes, there's a big mistake in that. The church now embraces a robust, rich conception of religious freedom. But that mistake was not in the premise. The premise is fine, and that premise is religion is a great human good, and the truer the religion, the better for the fulfillment of the believer. Absolutely true. That's not where the mistake is. The mistake, rather, was in the supposition made by some that the good of religion was not being advanced or participated in outside the context of the one true faith and that it could be reliably protected and advanced by placing civil restrictions enforceable by agencies of the political state on the advocacy of religious ideas. In rejecting this supposition, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council did not embrace the idea that error has rights. They noticed, rather, that people have rights 
and they have rights even when they are in error. And among those rights, integral to the authentic to authentic religion as a fundamental and irreducible aspect of the human good is the right to express and even advocate in line with one's sense of one's conscientious obligations what one believes to be true in spiritual matters, even if one's beliefs are in one or another way less than fully sound and indeed even if they are false. Now, when I have assigned the document Dignitatis Humanae, that document of the Second Vatican Council which proclaims the Church's endorsement of the robust conception of religious freedom, when I've assigned that in my courses addressing questions of religious liberty, I've always stressed to my students the importance of reading another document of the Second Vatican Council together with it, and that is the document known as Nostra Aetate. Both of these documents are short and very readable. Not all the documents of the Second Vatican Council are short or readable. These two are, and if you haven't read them, or if you're not, especially if you're not familiar with them prior to this lecture, I'd encourage you, you know, this evening, if you have a half hour, uh, 45 minutes, to read the two uh, documents. Um, they're, they're really impressive, actually, beautiful documents. Whether one is Catholic or not, I don't think it's possible to, receive a rich, uh, to achieve a rich understanding of Dignitatis Humanae, the Declaration on Religious Liberty, and the developed teaching of the Catholic Church on religious freedom without considering what the Council Fathers proclaim in Nostra Aetate, which is the declaration on the Church's understanding of and relationship to the non-Christian religions. Uh, Nostra Aetate is a pretty well-known document, and not just by Catholics, but it's mainly known, and some people make the mistake of believing that it's only about the Church's relationship with Jews and Judaism. Because it's in Nostra Aetate, thank God, that the Church finally definitively repudiates all forms of anti-Jewish prejudice and hatred, uh, all charges that the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ and that there are going to curse the people and all that stuff. The Church blows off. It was never official Catholic doctrine, but lots of Catholics believed it. And some popes actually said things that, that reinforced it. But the Church finally gets that squarely in its view and says, no, uh, you cannot blame all the Jews now or even then uh, for, the, uh, for the death of Christ, the so-called deicide charge uh, against the Jews. But while Nostra Aetate is rightly famous for its repudiation of anti-Semitism and its, um, its affirmation uh, of the Jewish people, it's about much more than that. In Nostra Aetate, the fathers pay tribute, fathers of the council, the bishops, together with the Pope, uh, pay tribute to all that is, I quote, true and holy, unquote, implying then explicitly saying that there is much that is good and worthy in non-Christian faiths, including Hinduism and Buddhism, and especially in the great monotheistic traditions of Judaism and Islam. In so doing, the fathers, of the fathers of the Council give recognition to the ways in which religion, even where it does not include the defining content of what the Council Fathers as Catholics believe to be religion in its fullest and most robust sense, namely the incarnation of Jesus Christ, nevertheless enriches, ennobles, and fulfills the human person in the spiritual dimension of his being. And this is to be honored and respected, the Council Fathers teach, because 
The dignity of the human person requires it. Naturally, the non-recognition of Christ as the Son of God must count for the fathers, as Catholics, as a falling short in the non-Christian faiths, even the Jewish faith, in which Christianity is itself rooted and which stands, according to Catholic teaching, in an unbroken and unbreakable covenant with God, just as the proclamation of Christ as the Son of God must count as an error in Christianity from a Jewish or Muslim point of view. But, the fathers teach, this does not mean that Judaism and Islam are simply false and with no merit, just as neither Judaism nor Islam teaches that Christianity is simply false and of no merit. On the contrary, these traditions enrich the lives of their faithful in their spiritual dimensions, thus contributing vitally to their fulfillment. Now, the Catholic Church does not have a monopoly on the natural law reasoning by which I'm today explicating and defending the right, the human right to religious liberty. Remember when I was quoting Dr. King earlier, he was talking about the way just laws are in line with natural law. That is, what we can know about morality with our natural powers of human reason. This is a long traditional way of thinking about uh, morality and reason in the Catholic tradition. Uh, I'm a Catholic myself. We didn't invent it. Uh, we, its roots are in uh, antiquity and in the writings of the Greek philosophers and the Roman jurists. But it is true that the church in our own time has been the principal institutional bearer of that tradition. I was just reading a, a tweet <laughs> Uh, by Zena Hitz, the wonderful author of the book Lost in Thought. Uh, she's a, a Catholic convert, a Jewish background Catholic uh, convert. And uh, she, she, in her tweet, she says, um, I was in a Catholic church and I reached for the hymnal, and when I pulled out the hymnal, it wasn't a hymnal, it was a copy of Aristotle's Metaphysics. That's so Catholic. That's <laughs> that emphasis on uh, reason. But although the church has been the great institutional bearer of this tradition, we didn't invent it and we don't have a monopoly on it. But the church really does have a deep commitment to such reasoning. Catholicism is an anti-fideist religion. We don't think it's a leap of faith or just a leap of faith. We think it, you know, faith is reasoned and reasonable. We believe in the harmony of faith and reason. Faith and reason are, the, as John Paul II said in his great encyclical on the subject, the two wings on which the human spirit ascends to contemplation of the truth. We don't see faith and reason in conflict or in, even in tension. And in Dignitatis Humanae, that's the document on religious freedom, the fathers of the Vatican Council present a natural law argument for religious freedom. Indeed, they begin by presenting a natural law argument in the document before then supplementing it with arguments appealing to the authority of God's revelation in sacred scripture. So let me ask you to linger with me just a little bit longer over these key Catholic texts so that I can illustrate by the teachings of an actual faith how religious leaders and believers, and not just statesmen concerned to craft national policy or international policy in circumstances of religious pluralism, can incorporate into their understanding of the right to religious freedom arguments available to all men and women of goodwill simply by virtue of what Professor Rawls once referred to as our common human reason. We may disagree about revelation. 
what's in Scripture, what Scriptures are the right Scriptures. We may disagree with all that, about all that. But on the basis of our common human reason, we can know a lot of what we need to know about the requirement that we respect people's religious freedom. So let me quote at some length from Nostra Aetate, the Church's document on its understanding of and relation to the non-Christian faiths, to give you an appreciation of the rational basis, the rational basis of Catholicism's affirmation of the good of religion as manifested in the different concrete, real, on the ground, historical faiths over time and across the globe. I do this in order to show how one faith, in this case Catholicism, can root its robust conception of religious freedom not in a mere modus vivendi, let's make a deal. I won't kill you for your religion, you don't kill me for my religion. You let me practice my religion, I'll let you practice your religion. A lot of times when people think about religious freedom, they think of it as a deal, especially we Americans, we like, we like to make deals. We even like presidents who like to make deals. You know? But the Catholic understanding is it's not a deal. It's all about the protection of a basic human good. So, Catholicism treats the issue not as a matter of a mutual non-aggression pact or a social compact or contract or what the late Judith Sklar called a liberalism of fear. I'm going to not persecute you so that you won't persecute me. Much less in religious relativism. Oh, there is no such thing as religious truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. You've heard, you guys have heard all that. But rather, Catholicism roots it in a rational affirmation of the value of religion as embodied and made available to people in and through the various traditions of faith. So here's what Nostra Aetate says, and let me quote. Throughout history, even to the present day, there is found among different peoples a certain awareness of a hidden power which lies behind the course of nature and the events of human life. At times there is present even a recognition of a supreme being, or still more, a father. This awareness and recognition results in a way of life that is imbued with a deep religious sense. The religions which are found in the more advanced civilizations endeavor by way of well-defined concepts and exact language to answer these questions. Thus in Hinduism, men explore the divine mystery and express it both in the limitless riches of myth and the accurately defined insights of philosophy. They seek release from the trials of the present life by ascetical practices, profound med meditation, and recourse to God in confidence and love. Buddhism, in its various forms, testifies to the essential inadequacy of this changing world. It proposes a way of life by which men can with confidence and trust attain a state of perfect liberation and reach supreme illumination, either through their own efforts or by the aid of divine help. So too, other religions, which are found throughout the world, attempt in their own ways to calm the hearts of men by outlining a program of life covering doctrine, moral precepts, and sacred rites. The, I'm still quoting, the Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions. She has a high regard for the manner of life and conduct, the precepts and doctrines, which although differing in many ways from her own teaching, nevertheless often reflect truths which enlighten all men. Yet she proclaims and is in duty bound to proclaim without fail, Christ 
who is the way, the truth, and the life. In him, in whom God reconciled all things to himself, men find the fullness of their religious life. Still quoting. The church therefore urges her sons to enter with prudence and charity into discussion and collaboration with members of other religions. Let Christians, while witnessing to their own faith and way of life, acknowledge, preserve, and encourage the spiritual and moral truths found among non-Christians. The church also has a high regard for the Muslims. They worship God, who is one, living, and subsistent, merciful and almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, who has also spoken to men. They strive to submit themselves without reserve to the decrees of God, just as Abraham submitted himself to God's plan, to, whom faith, to whose faith Muslims link their own. Although not acknowledging Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. His virgin mother they also honor, and even at times devoutly invoke. Further, they await the day of judgment and the reward of God following the resurrection of the dead. For this reason, they highly esteem an upright life and worship God, especially by way of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Over the centuries, many quarrels and dissensions have arisen between Christians and Muslims. This sacred council now pleads, pleads with all to forget the past and urges that a sincere effort be made to achieve mutual understanding for the benefit of all men. Let them together preserve and promote peace, liberty, social justice, and moral values. I'm going to interrupt my quoting here to remind you that this is 1965. This wasn't yesterday. This beautiful outreach to the Muslim community, this reflection on what we have in common with our Muslim brothers and sisters. Now it goes on, and here's the part for which the document is most famous. Sounding the depths of mystery which is the church. When a, when a, when a church document starts out with something like that, the big one's coming. <laughs> Sounding the depths of mystery which is the church. This sacred council remembers the spiritual ties, spiritual ties, which link the people of the new covenant to the stock of Abraham, the Jewish people. The Church of Christ acknowledges that in God's plan of salvation, the beginning of her faith and election is to be found in the patriarchs and in Moses and the prophets. She professes that all Christ's faithful, who as men of faith are sons of Abraham, are included in the same patriarch's call and that the salvation of the church is mystically prefigured in the exodus of God's chosen people from the land of bondage. On this account, the church cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament by way of that people with whom God in his inexpressible mercy established the ancient covenant. Nor can she forget that she, the church, draws nourishment from that good olive tree, the Jews, onto which the wild olive branches of the Gentiles have been grafted. Quoting here Romans 11. The church believes that Christ, who is our peace, has through his cross reconciled Jews and Gentiles and made them one in himself. Quoting Ephesians. All right. That was a long quotation, but I wanted you to, to feel the complete force of what the church is teaching us here. Now, in my own voice, of course, from the point of view of any believer, of any tradition, any faith, 
The further one gets away from faith in all of its dimensions, from the truth of faith, I should say, the further one gets away from the fullness of truth of faith, um, the fullness of religious life, as the Council Fathers say, the less fulfillment is available. It's better to have more truth than less. But that does not mean that even a primitive and superstition-laden faith, the kinds of faiths that the Council is talking about at the very beginning of the language I quoted, much less the faiths of what the Council Fathers call those advanced civilizations, is utterly devoid of value or that there is no right to religious liberty for people who practice those faiths. Nor does it mean, Mr. Dawkins, that atheists have no right to religious freedom. The fundaments of respect for the good of religion require that civil authority respect and in appropriate ways even nurture conditions or circumstances in which people can engage in the sincere religious quest and live lives of authenticity and integrity reflecting their best judgments as to the truth of spiritual matters. To compel an atheist, say Camus, to perform acts that are premised on theistic beliefs that he in good conscience simply cannot share is to deny him the fundamental bit of the good of religion, the good I'm calling the good of religion, that is his, namely, living with authenticity and integrity, with honesty, in light of his best judgments about the fundamental religious questions, the best judgments, his best judgments of ultimate reality. Coercing him to perform religious acts, like requiring an atheist to go to mass or to attend a, a Jewish service or a Muslim service, does him no good, since faith really must be free, I mean, a coerced faith is not faith, right? I mean, if you're doing something under coercion, faith, coercion can, can, can compel the outward manifestations of faith, the, the, what people do when they are true believers. You can force a person to go to church. You can force a person to uh, attend a Passover Seder. You can force a person to go to the mosque. But what coercion can't reach are the internal acts of intellect and will that are the substance of faith. That's the real faith. It's the internal acts. So you're denying, you're not, you're not actually doing him, any, doing him any good, and you're dishonoring his dignity as a free and rational person. That's why the document on religious freedom is called Dignitatis Humanae, human dignity. The violation of religious liberty then is more than futile, worse than futile. Now of course there are and must be limits to the freedom that must be respected for the sake of the good of religion and the dignity of the human person as a being whose integral fulfillment includes the spiritual quest and the ordering of one's life in line with one's best judgments as to where spiritual truth lies. Gross evil, even grave injustices, can be and have been committed by sincere people for the sake of religion. I mean, uh, Tim, you know, when I was serving on the chairing the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, some of, some of the tragedy that I uh, reflected on was when I saw genuine oppressors who were oppressing religious minorities and recognized that they weren't doing this out of some um, venal motive. They actually thought they were doing the right thing. They were sincere. And throughout history, in almost all religions, uh, people with power have oppressed other people violated their right to religious freedom on the basis of the sincere view that they were doing the right thing. Gross evil, 
Even grave injustice can be committed by sincere people for the sake of religion. Unspeakable wrongs can be done, have been done, by people seeking sincerely to get right with God or the gods or their conception of ultimate reality, whatever it is. I mean, the people who murdered Socrates really thought, sincerely believed that Socrates was harming the community by denying the gods of the city and corrupting the, the youth of Athens. We, we look at that and say, one of the most horrific crimes in history, they killed of all people, Socrates. But some of the people who were involved in the mob, a democratic mob, by the way, some of the people involved were undoubtedly sincere in their belief that Socrates was doing real harm. So the presumption in favor of respecting liberty must, for the sake of the human good and the dignity of the human person as free and rational, um, must be powerful and broad. But it can't be unlimited. Even the great end of getting right with God cannot justify a morally bad means, even for a sincere believer. And of course, the doing of evil for any reason, even for the sake of good consequences, is no way to get right with God. So I don't doubt the sincerity of the people who murdered Socrates or some of the people who persecute people in places around the world today, or the ancient Aztecs in practicing human sacrifice, or the sincerity of those in the history of various traditions of faith, including the Catholic faith and other Christian traditions, who use coercion and even torture in the cause of what they believe to be religiously required. You know, I can understand that. You know, we don't want to be you know, too judgmental in the sense that we wouldn't want to imagine that had we been there at that time, in that place, we wouldn't have done it. Still, these things are deeply wrong and need not and should not be tolerated for the sake of religious freedom. To suppose otherwise is to back oneself into the rather awkward position of supposing that violations of religious freedom and other injustices of equal gravity must be respected for the sake of religious freedom, and obviously that can't be right. Still, to overcome the powerful and broad presumption in favor of religious liberty, to be justified in requiring the believer to do something contrary to his faith or forbidding the believer to do something that his faith requires, political authority must meet a heavy burden. Now the legal test here in the United States under what we call our Religious Freedom Restoration Acts at the federal and state levels is one way of capturing the presumption and the burden. And, and here's how this goes in the law. To justify, for purposes of, of legal uh, standing, to justify a law that bears negatively on someone's religious freedom, even if it's a neutral law of general applicability, it must, that is a law that's not designed to harass people. It's just like, you know, it's a, a law that applies to everybody that, that nobody thought that there would be some religious minority who couldn't comply with it. Nobody knew about that religious minority's view or anything like that. That's what I mean by a general law, a neutral law of general applicability. To justify a law that bears negatively on religious freedom, uh, the state must show that it has a compelling state interest that's the highest standard known to our law. A compelling state interest, that is, it means a really powerful justification for the use of coercion in defiance of religious freedom. And it must further show that that particular form of coercion is the least restrictive or least, least invasive means of achieving the compelling state interest, of realizing the compelling state interest. Now we can debate, and we do debate, and the big Supreme Court cases in this area are all about the question 
uh, of whether it is or should be up to the courts or to legislators to decide when exemptions to general neutral laws should be granted for the sake of religious freedom or to determine when the presumption in favor of religious freedom has been overcome. So the big clashes in the Supreme Court have not been about whether we should exempt religious minorities, for example, or for that matter majorities, from neutral laws of general applicability where those laws, if applied against them, will undermine their religious freedom and there's no compelling interest for the state to do that. Um, we, the debates are about who gets to decide when the compelling state interest standard has been met or what the compelling state interest is? Who, who gets to decide whether the exemption should be granted? For many years, as a matter of our constitutional law from the early 1960s into the 1990s, basically the courts claimed the right to do it for themselves. In 1991-92, in a case called uh, Employment Division of Oregon against Smith, an opinion by Justice Scalia, the court backed out of that and said, this is all up to the legislature. Yes, exemptions are perfectly permissible and probably should be granted in many cases, but it's up to the legislatures to grant the exemptions. It's not up to the courts to grant the exemptions. The court now seems to be moving back in the direction of the original jurisprudence and now led by Justice Alito. Uh, there's a movement to overturn the Smith uh, decision. But the substantive matter, however you come down on this question of the whether it should be the courts or the legislature, which is a question of separation of powers under American constitutional law. The substantive matter of what religious freedom demands from those who exercise the levers of state power should be something non-controversial, something on which reasonable people of goodwill across the religious and political spectrum should agree on, precisely because it is a matter capable of being settled by our common human reason. Thank you for being a very patient audience. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.